It's a very fitting song uh, to introduce the new sermon series that we're beginning today. We've spent a year going through the teachings of Christ, um, and I've been praying for months on what should come next. And I think given where our church is, given what we've been through, given what we're going through uh, in our young history, I wanted to pick a book that really uh, is a foundational book of the faith, something that lays the groundwork for how our church should be led and, and what kind of disciples we should produce, something that is like almost creedal, something that's almost like fundamental, foundational to give us a strong foundation we can build on. So to that end, I think the Lord really wants us to go into the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, 1 Timothy and the book of Titus for the next year is where we're going to be. And the series is called The Front Lines of Faith. The title comes from 1 Timothy 1, 18-19, which we'll put up on the screen. And it says this. It says in 1 Timothy 1, 18-19, Wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Front lines of the faith. The church is called to war. The church is called to fight. For what? For what? Well, we'll find out. But when you think of war, when you think of battle, what, what comes to mind? Do you have like a favorite war movie that you watch? Come on, just throw one out there. What's your favorite war movie that you watch? Pearl Harbor? Come on, what is it? Is it Private Rise of Patton? Is it, what, what's your favorite war movie? I mean, when you think of war, you think of, right, those explosions and the fight between good and evil and armies colliding. And there's so many great war movies out there. Uh, all that war imagery, all the sounds and the sights of war is now summoned to our mind in the Bible as it says, wage the good warfare. I think I'm going to have a new favorite war movie come Christmas because there's a movie coming out that documents the life of a man named Louis Zamperini. It comes from a book called Unbroken. Who's read that book, Unbroken? Anybody read that yet? you got to get it. you got to read it. we got pictures of Louis Zamperini we'll put up on the screen here. Uh, he was an Olympic runner. In fact, he was a sprinter breaking records. He was approaching record-breaking mile times. And he actually, in the 30s, he ran in the Olympics in Berlin. At the end of a strong finish, he went to the stands and shook Adolf Hitler's hand, who was impressed by his running. And of course, then Hitler plunged the whole world into war. And Louis went off to the Pacific, and he would fight the war aboard bombers. Uh, he'd be a bombardier. And this movie that's coming out called Unbroken is about his life. And I want you to check out the preview. We're going to show it right now. However dark the night, however dim our hopes. Inbound, four o'clock The light will always follow darkness. Keep going the way you're going, you end up as a bum on the street. You train. You fight harder than those other guys, and you win. If you can take it, you can make it. You can do this, Lou. You just gotta believe you can. Pop does. Ma does. I do. Louis, a moment of pain is worth a lifetime of glory.
We're gonna die out here. We're not dying! I got good news and bad news. Who is the Olympic athlete? Don't look at me. Hello, mother, father. This is your Louis talking. I'm now interned in a Tokyo prisoner of war camp. I can't say this. What it says about America, it's not true. This man must be taught respect. Each prison will teach him this lesson. He used to think that I could do anything. That I was better than I am. Who says you're not? If you can be through this, I swear, I'll dedicate my whole life to you. Now you have to get the book because Hollywood is going to get it wrong, all right? Hollywood is going to get it wrong. What God did in this man's life is unbelievable. You've got to get the story. Now, I showed you that because I'm going to share his story many times throughout the whole series. But war, I mean fatal I mean horror, I mean ugly, I mean war is what is used to describe what should be happening in God's church. First Timothy says, Paul to Timothy, wage the good warfare. And the Bible talks about the war in the spiritual realms, that's not what this is about. The Bible talks about the war in our hearts between good and evil. That's not what this is about. In 1 Timothy, the war that we're supposed to wage is actually in the church. You can write this down. Here's the purpose of the book. The purpose of the book is this. We must embrace and defend sound doctrine and true discipleship. As a church, we must embrace it and we must defend it. What? Sound doctrine and true discipleship. Only then can we, as 1 Timothy 6.19 says, only then can we as a church take hold of the life that is truly life. The point of this morning's message is this. We have to, as a church, guard the truth with our life. Let's pray and then we'll get into the word together. Father above, thank you that you have given us a truth. Thank you that you have given us a life-changing truth that leads us from death to eternal life with you. Help us to know what it means in your word to embrace this and to defend it. Show us what it means to be called into service as a soldier, to wage a good warfare and to fight for what is true, to fight for what is biblical. And form our church through this entire series, Lord. We ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, you can go ahead and open up to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. This sermon will feel just a little different from other sermons because it's more of an introduction. It's more of an overview of the book, and we're talking about the uh, the, basically the authorship of the book, the date, the circumstances, and the whole purpose. But in 1 Timothy 1, chapter 1, verse 1, it begins by saying this. Paul is our author. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father 
and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a letter written from an apostle, Paul, to a pastor, Timothy. And the letter becomes something much more than a correspondence between an apostle and a pastor. It actually becomes something God wanted to communicate to his whole church from heaven to earth on what he wants his church to be about. Notice what Paul says first. These two have been partners in ministry for decades at this point, and Paul, an apostle, reminds Timothy of his own story. He says, hey, Paul, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Then he says to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. The first thing an apostle does in a letter to a pastor is reviews preschool kindergarten theology with him. Isn't that something? The first thing he reminds him of is the basic gospel of Christ. You can write this down. Here's the first thing this book gives us. We must believe God saves sinners through his son. We must, what are we going to fight for? What do we have to defend? What do we have to keep watch over? This truth. We believe God saves sinners through his son. Look back at verse 1. Back at verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our, now what's that word there? Savior. Savior. Hey, do you know that what the Bible teaches is this? You don't need a teacher. You don't need a coach. You don't need an encourager. You don't need a doctor. You, you don't need a therapist. Primarily, your greatest, most fundamental need in this entire world is you need a Savior. You are in shark-infested waters, surrounded by a hopeless sea that extends in all directions, and you cannot save yourself. Someone else needs to save you. That person has a name. According to the Bible, it says, God our Savior sent Christ Jesus to be our Lord and our hope. Look back down at what it says. It says, by the command of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. What does that word hope mean? It doesn't mean the way we use it, like, I hope I win a million dollars. I hope I meet the man of my dreams this year. Uh, It's not like this flaky, maybe it will, maybe it won't hope. The Bible word hope means you have a settled confidence in something that you haven't seen yet. It's done in your heart, but you haven't seen it with your eyes yet. That's hope. And here Paul says, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Hey, let me just ask you this. I, I mean, do you have a Savior? Have you been saved? And are you living with the settled reassurance of hope that you will go to heaven when you pass on from this life? Because the first thing an apostle does to a pastor in a letter is reminds him of the very basic fundamentals of Christianity. Paul had a Savior. Paul shares his story if you turn back in your Bible. Keep your place here, but turn back to the book of Acts, chapter 9. The book of Acts, chapter 9, shares Paul's story. Uh, Don't be confused, because in Acts 9, he's called Saul, which is his Jewish name. Uh, He's he's called Saul and Paul. But in, in chapter 9, it's the same person. It says in Acts 9 this, says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, meaning Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, 
Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. Listen, this was like the chief persecutor of the Christian church. He, he went to other cities to bind, handcuff men and women, drag them back to Jerusalem so they can be tried, killed, or imprisoned. What would be today, what would be the equivalent Um, It would be the equivalent of someone standing up and saying, well, you know, before I came to know Christ, I was like a cameraman for ISIS. And I even helped out a couple of times in finishing the job. But then God saved me. He was a monster. He was a murderer. He was a bloodthirsty lunatic who killed people in the name of God and thought God was happy with him. That's the author of this book. 1 Timothy. Well, what changed? Christ knocked him down, blinded him, and then check out verse 18 in Acts 9. Immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, taking food. He was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? Has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. That's your author. Your author is a man who witnessed the risen Lord, was called by Jesus himself into service, the Apostle Paul. Well, who's the audience? He writes to a man named Timothy. So looking back at 1 Timothy 1, it says, Paul, an apostle, by command of God our Savior in Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Did you catch that? My true child in the faith. He referred to Timothy as a genuine follower of Christ in the faith. Uh, The story of how these two met is interesting too. Paul was saved in the 30s. I don't mean in the 1930s, I mean like the original 30s, like the only 30s. (laughs) Shortly after Christ died, Paul was saved. He spent his first decade in obscurity. Paul didn't, for 10 years, he just kind of disappeared. and, And then he reappeared in the 40s, and the church sent him on his first missionary journey in the 40s. One of the towns he stopped in on that first missionary journey is Lystra. He met a boy there, a teenager at the time, named Timothy, probably not even 20 years old yet. And and when he came to town, Paul had healed somebody, a crippled man. And so all the village people came down and crowded around Paul and concluded he was a god. And they started offering sacrifices to him and bowing down and worshiping him. So he had to stop. No, 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 get back up. I'm not a god. And then all these other people came from other towns and, and, and just stirred up the crowds against him. And it was in this city, uh, Timothy's hometown, where they stoned Paul by throwing rocks at him until he was dead on the ground, dragged him outside of the city, and then God miraculously raised him up to life. Timothy saw this. This was his first encounter with the Apostle Paul. Well, Paul came back 
a couple of years later in the late 40s and asked to take Timothy on the second missionary journey with him. And so uh, Timothy was actually a third-generation Christian. Paul says elsewhere that uh, he knew of the faith that first lived in his grandmother and then in his mother and then in Timothy. So you have two different types of Christians here. You've got Paul, who was on the way wrong road, and God turned him around, right? But then you've got Timothy, who heard it from Grandma and from Mom, and from, like, when he was born, he had been hearing the truth of Christ. And here, when Paul takes him on the missionary journey, what an adventure he was in for. They were jailed in Philippi, uh, then there was an earthquake, and then in Corinth, then they went to Ephesus, where there was a huge riot, Eventually, they would go on to Jerusalem, and Timothy would probably be with Paul as he went on to imprisonment in Rome. They would spend 20 years doing ministry together. How cool is that? Like, Timothy got to see books of the Bible as they were being written. What are you doing, Paul? Oh, I'm writing a letter to Ephesus. Oh, tell him I said hi. Okay, you just got in the Bible. (laughs) I mean, Timothy got to see the book of Romans, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, 1 Thessalonians written. Talk about God putting Timothy in such an amazing, pivotal, spiritually formative position in life. And who's your mentor? The Apostle Paul for 20 years. Well, this book was actually written, 1 Timothy was actually written in the 60s. What that means is everything in Acts had already happened. Paul was in prison in Rome, then he was let out. And he had several more years while Nero, lunatic, was on the throne before he'd be killed. It was in the 60s that Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus to get some things squared away. It was in the 60s that Paul wrote 1 Timothy to his partner in ministry after they had been serving together for 20 years. And what do you write? What does an apostle write to a pastor after 20 years of serving side by side? What does he write? He basically just tells him the gospel right away. How cool is that? And what does he say to him? He says, listen, Timothy, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Hey, Timothy, seasoned veteran and pastor and teacher, listen, you who we sat in jail together, listen, remember, you need grace from Christ. Grace means an unearned gift. Grace means you can never work hard enough or be good enough to deserve God's blessing in your life. You will never do enough good to offset your bad so that God lets you into heaven that way. It's grace. It's free. It's undeserved. He's reminding this pastor of this truth. He also says mercy, grace and mercy. Mercy is where God meets us in our misery. Our misery. And he spares us from the total ruin that our sin has caused in our lives. Meaning God intervenes before our sin completely condemns us to hell forever and gives us mercy. Grace and mercy and peace. Peace with God. Peace of mind. Peace of soul. Eternal peace of knowing where you're going. When you leave this life, hey, hey, Pastor Timothy, hey, partner in ministry, hey, grace and mercy and peace from Christ Jesus. Remember, you were saved. Remember, I was saved. And that just makes me wonder, have you been saved? Do you have a story? Do you have a story when God saved you through faith in Christ? Maybe your story is like Paul's, where he turned you around drastically. And maybe it's more like Timothy's, where you heard it from grandma and even your parents. And he, but then there came a point where it became your own thing. Uh, my story is, I was a freshman in college. Here's a picture of me back in my college days. I was a long-haired, heavy metal drummer. That's my girlfriend, Lauren. Isn't she cute? We were just dating back then. This is my girlfriend. Uh, that's, that's me. That's when God got the truth 
to me. The bass player in my metal band invited me to church, and I went with them. That's where I heard the truth. That's where I repented of my sin. That's where God saved me. You know, and then my, my dad got saved back then. I was the first one in my family to get saved. Then my mom eventually got saved. She just got baptized this year. In fact, we were at a family party yesterday, and, and we just started eating without praying, you know, and my mom stopped everybody and said, hey, 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 how come we didn't pray yet? My mom is doing that now. So I love that salvation has come not only to my life, but to my family, and it started with me. You know, what's your story? Do you have a story? Are you saved? Are you saved? Paul reminds Timothy of his story and reminds Timothy of the truth of the gospel. Listen, first thing we're fighting for, first thing we're standing guard over is this. We believe God saves sinners, the worst of sinners, through His Son. Here's the second thing. You can write this down. We believe God calls us into His service. We believe God calls us into His service. So skip down to verse 18. Skip down to verse 18. Paul says this. He says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. All right, follow closely now. Paul says, This charge I entrust to you. All right, that's enough right there. Like if the Apostle Paul sat you down and said, I've got work for you to do. You're going to Ephesus. You're going to take care of some problems there. You're going to set some men straight. You'd be like, okay, okay, you're Paul. Don't zap me, right? So he's like, I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. But then he says, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. What does that mean? Well, that means in the early church, sometimes God had some things that he wanted to say. And, and a prophet would stand up. And prophets did more than just predict the future. You know, here's who's going to win today. You know, a prophet could share something God wanted spoken in a congregation. And apparently at some point, a prophet had said to Timothy, Hey, Timothy, you've got work specifically assigned to you from God above. Here's what he wants you to do. And Paul was reminding Timothy of his calling to be a servant of Christ. All right. Now, here's what we understand. What we understand is God calls us into his service. Now, you don't need a prophet to stand up and be like, Billy, God told me he wants you to serve in the parking lot. You know, you, like that's not normative. That's not how you hear God normally. But what is normative is every Christian has been gifted to serve. You're a Christian. You have been given spiritual gifts and a calling to suit up, to get ready, and to get out on the field. There's no bleachers. There's no bench. There's only starting athletes on God's team. Many of you are really excited, right, because today is the kickoff, the opening kickoff officially of the NFL. Who cares that the Packers played on Thursday? Today is when it really starts, right? All right, now how many of you do like fantasy football? You do fantasy football this year, you got your all roster selected. This is, this is my fourth year doing fantasy football, and I'm coming off of back-to-back third-place finishes the last two years, so I'm doing okay. But, uh, but I'm really excited this year, and I got my lineup all re- last night, don't do fantasy football in church. That's the surest way to curse your team. If you're setting your lineup during church, don't be surprised when your quarterback breaks his ankle. You're asking for it. All right, but you get your lineup set, and then, and then what you do is you check it later in the day, and what do you see? You expect your starting athletes to get you points. And then when you're like, what do you mean Arian Foster has a toe injury and he's not playing the rest of the game? He needs to get me some points, right? There's this idea that you're on my team I expect you to work hard and to get me glory, right? Listen, listen. 
When God brings you on his team, he's got a position for you to play. And yet, too often, Christians take this bleacher bum mentality where they're very willing to watch other people play the field, but they're not willing to find the position God has for them. They're not willing to get working and to see what God can do through them. The truth is, God has work for you to do. I mean, this is a message to our Trinity students. I'm glad we have so many of you here. Hey, don't take your college years off. Don't take your college years off. God has fruitful, abundant labor for you to do during these years. Don't hit the snooze button spiritually. Ask God to make these years the most fruitful years of your spiritual growth and your service to Christ yet. Ask Him, and He'll do that. We believe God calls us into His service, and healthy things multiply. And in the church, God will raise up people to work for Him in different places, and then guess what He'll do? Then He'll send those people out to multiply the impact of the gospel elsewhere. This is a picture of Pastor Brandon. You know, he went uh, to the Harvest Training Center for church planting. He just started that this week. Him and there's like, I think a total of 16 other guys. There's some of them here, but there's Pastor Brandon with his new clan. And each one of them is being trained to go and plant a church somewhere on the earth. There's international pastors. There's pastors going to Canada and elsewhere in the U.S. It looks like Brandon's going to go to Buffalo. He's a Bills fan, so pray extra hard for him. Um, <laughs> but, but how healthy is that, that he was on staff here for three years, we got a chance to get him all ready and trained up, and now we get to release him, and he's going to go and make an impact with people we've never met before. So hey, be in touch with him. Find him on Facebook. Send him encouragement. Pray for him. Why? Because God's got work for him to do, and it started here. So we're a part of that. Um, God calls us into his service, and he wants you to work for Christ. Uh, And what are we doing? Well, each one of us has to have this on-duty mentality. We have to see ourselves as soldiers for Christ and get in the fight. So look back what it says. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, verse 18, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. He's calling Timothy to, to war. He's calling Timothy to to march to the front lines of faith and open fire. And therefore, Christian, the Bible is also calling you to march to the front lines of faith and open fire. God, in his word here, is expecting a war to break out in his church. That's kind of weird. It doesn't sound very Christian for a pastor to be asking for a church fight. I mean, church fights are usually not, they're usually frowned upon. Oh, that church is fighting. They're going through. They're bad. But, but here, it's expected that there would be a fight for what is right in the church. Uh, just, just to show how awkward this is, we're going to play some battle sounds right now, as if we're really on the battlefield. Go ahead and do that. Just to show how, like, unbefitting of church these sounds really are. When I'm teaching, when you're learning... When we're in small groups, youth group tonight, kids ministry this morning, this is what the Bible's calling for. Wage the good warfare. March to the front lines and fight. (laughs) It just doesn't feel right, does it? It doesn't feel right. But we're supposed to engage the enemy. We're supposed to be waging war and struggling but for what? 
You see, the truth is the wrong kind of fighting is what hurts the church. The right kind of fighting is actually what solidifies the church. So what are we supposed to be fighting for? Well, look back at verse 18. It says in verse 18, wage the good warfare for what? Verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience. Holding faith, that's what we believe. That's the truth. That's what we teach. Holding it, guarding it, keeping it, fighting for it. And a good conscience. What's that? That's the confidence that you get when your life is in line with the gospel. My behavior, my convictions, my, my attitudes. My... So I've got faith, which is what I believe, and then I've got my good conscience, which is how I behave. Listen, when we're supposed to march to the front lines of faith with a shoot-to-kill order, we as a church are supposed to rally around the truth and we're supposed to be willing to die for it, and we're supposed to rally around proper discipleship and how a conduct befitting a Christian, and we are supposed to be willing to die for that too. We're supposed to go to war for our faith and for our discipleship. You can jot this down. This is the third point. We must fight for true faith. It's not going to come naturally. The enemy won't give it up without a fight. We have to fight for true faith. This is right doctrine. We're supposed to wage the good warfare for this. Hey, listen, not every church teaches the same thing. Not every church actually teaches what is right and biblical and good. In fact, there are many churches who have lost the war altogether. And though they are a church with staff members and pews and maybe a baptistry, they're a false church because they've lost the battle over what's being taught. We'll call this the air war. The air war is what goes out over the air, the truth that we are spreading. The ground war is more of our lifestyle. It's getting the love of Christ and and getting the lifestyle of Christ out to the world. That's like the ground war. But the air war is what we truly teach and believe. And we have to fight for the true faith. What are some of the opposing, conflicting truths that we're fighting against? Well, if I had to list a few, you can write these down. I think in the church around the world, there's a huge fight against what's called the prosperity gospel. It's spreading all over the world, Africa, South America. It's a false gospel. Listen, it's a false gospel. It's being taught by false teachers. It's being believed by false converts, and it's taking people to hell and not to heaven. It's the prosperity gospel. What does that teach? Well, it teaches basically that you come to Jesus and you get a free car. You come to Christ and all your dreams come true. You come to church for the goodie bags. It teaches that all of your dreams can come true in this life if you just hit the pinata Jesus hard enough and and then basically you'll become healthy, wealthy, prosperous in every way. It's a false gospel. We're against it. We don't teach it here. We don't adhere to it. And we try and rescue people out where it's being taught. What would be another example? Well, I think another example would be a legalistic church, legalism. Many of you have shared your stories with me from legalistic upbringings where where the whole mission of the church is to control your external environment and behavior. They'll tell you what to wear. They'll tell you how long your hair can be. They'll tell you how to dress. They'll tell you what to listen to, what movies you can watch. It's external conformity to unbiblical rules, and they promise you that that will get you into heaven. That's a false gospel. That's a false gospel taught by false teachers. Because you can't get to heaven by following rules of the body and the flesh. Some of these stories are so laughable. I heard one guy teach, told, told me that their church took a ski trip, a retreat. And on the ski retreat, the women 
I had to wear snow dresses because pants are evil. And, and so, what? And, and in these churches, the leaders are expected to govern and rule and dictate over the gray areas of the Bible. And the lie is this, that if we control the external, surely God will get around to controlling the internal, and that's false. It's a false gospel. It doesn't work. We fight against that thinking. We rescue people from that teaching because legalism can't save. I think another one would be pluralism. Pluralism. Pluralism is a false truth. Here's what it says. It says, oh, sure, everything that you believe about Jesus in the Bible is true, but other people's beliefs are true also. So you can believe it, just don't tell anybody who adheres to another faith that their thing is wrong because it's true for you, but their thing is true for them. It's called pluralism. It means there can be multiple choice. There can be a, uh, you know, the answer D on the multiple choice question, all of the above. All of the above are true. It's called pluralism. And it creeps into the heart, and what it says is this. Sure, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life for me, but there's other people who can find other ways into God's favor. That's false. That's false. It's a false teaching. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. And what's true for us is true for everyone in the world. How can they be saved unless they hear the truth of Christ? Listen, this book is going to really form our convictions. This book is really going to make you look deep inside your soul and ask yourself this question. Do I embrace the truth I find in the Bible with all my heart as true for me and true for everyone on the face of the planet? Because it is. It is. And it's going to force us to let go of wrong thinking and wrong teaching. Uh, The sentimental belief that somehow a truth that is completely different from the truth of Christ can get people into heaven. It's a lie. And it's not loving to believe it, and it's not loving to allow other people to believe it, especially if you know that it can't save. We have to fight for the true faith. The prosperity gospel, legalism, pluralism, they're they're all things that we're against and we're trying to rescue people from. I think the last one would be churches that begin to obsess over polarizing doctrines. Obsessing over polarizing doctrines. Hey, I love theology. I love reading theology, don't you? I love learning more and more about what the truth of the, the Bible really is. But see, it happens in churches where one area of theology takes over and becomes the whole church's mission. It could be many different ones. It could be anything from eschatology, certain views of end times, dispensationalism, charismatic gifts. It could be Calvinism. It could be whatever it is. But here's the thing. It takes over and it becomes militant and it becomes obsessive and it replaces the gospel. And then church leaders become watchdogs over this very narrow, polarizing view of a certain area of doctrine. And then the church tries to win people to their system of theology instead of their Savior. And great delight is shown when someone comes to know their system of theology, almost as if it's salvation, and and less and less is made of a person truly finding Christ. That's what we're against. That's what we're opposed to. That's what we're battling against. We have to fight for the true faith. We have to make sure that the truth doesn't get hijacked by other truths. So we believe God saves sinners through His Son. We believe God calls us into His service. We've got to fight for the true faith. Here's the next one, number four. We must also fight for true discipleship. We must also fight for true discipleship. It says holding faith and a good conscience. And a good conscience. 
What does that mean? That means that our lifestyles, that means that our, our walk in this world, that means our preferences and how we conduct ourselves uh, is going to be under scrutiny of the Bible. And that means we have to be willing to sit down with a brother or sister in Christ and say, hey, listen, I just got to talk to you about this. This area of your life has really given the gospel a black eye. I mean, it's really souring the truth of Christ that you'll go to church, sing the praises of the Lord, and then by Sunday night, that's what you're doing? Listen, listen. You've got to get your discipleship in order. It's not enough to just say, this is what I believe. Your life has to fall in line with that. You see, but we've got to fight for it. We've got to fight for it in this church. and We have to make sure that we call people to ongoing personal spiritual growth. We also have to make sure that our leaders rise to the high standards set forth in Scripture. 1 Timothy 3 is all about the standards of leaders and officers in the church. And I don't know if you've been watching this, but it's fascinating how as denominations have broken down and these celebrity pastors have emerged in the Christian world, many of whom have no true accountability, it's fascinating to see when they behave like juveniles and they act like even a fourth grade Christian shouldn't act, and their church is just expected to put up with it for years and years and years, the congregation finally rises up and says, hey, grow up, we're not putting up with this anymore in the household of God. They're tearing these men down and humbling them and saying what? Saying what? We're willing to fight for the truth that you're supposed to already know about. It's interesting how that's happening. But that's the point. We're going to have to fight for it. Listen, godly leaders aren't just going to spring out of the fire like the golden calves in the Old Testament. Behold, we threw them in this room and out they came, the godliest leaders in the planet. No, it's going to be a war. There's going to be hard conversations. Godly leaders lead to godly teaching, which leads to godly servants who believe godly things and do godly things. Ungodly leaders lead to unbiblical teachings, which lead to unbiblical faith. Bad examples, false converts. See, and I'm so blessed in our church. We have going on 50 people who lead something in our church now. Elders, deacons, staff members, flock leaders, small group leaders, ministry leaders. We've got about 50 people. And it is such a blessing to know these leaders. They're not perfect, but they're godly. They're not done growing, but they are growing. Um, And in our short history, five years as a church, we haven't had any major root of bitterness but we haven't had any leader who's tried to totally turn everything around. The time will come. Our leaders will be tested and pressed. But I've just been so proud of our leaders. I've been so blessed by the example of faith that they're setting, the passion that they have. for the. I mean, after 40, 50-hour work weeks, they're sitting down and caring for their small group and making hospital visits and phone calls. I mean, I'm just so blessed by that. And I think if we keep that godly devotion around the leadership table, that's going to spread to the congregation and bless each one of us. See? But we have to rise up to that standard, and that's what 1 Timothy is all about. We've got to fight for it, for true biblical discipleship that honors the Lord. Hold to the faith and to a good conscience. And here's the fifth one. We must fight for biblical discipline. For true discipleship, for true faith, But we also must fight for biblical discipline. Where does this one come from? Well, Paul names a few names in verse 19. These are like cautionary tales of what happens when the church stops fighting for what is true and right. He says in verse 19, Holding faith in a good conscience, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. 
This is a really bad way to get into the Bible. <laughs> to be named by the Apostle Paul as two people who were put under church discipline, who were removed from the realm of God's glorious family and community of faith, and hurled out into the dark abyss where Satan can take free reign to harass and hurt them and torment them until they learn the lesson that what they're doing and what they're teaching is wrong. The word used is shipwreck. Shipwreck. Why do we have to fight to make sure the teaching is true, embraced, biblical, orthodox? Why do we have to fight to make sure disciples are produced in a biblical way? Because if we don't, we'll shipwreck people. Here's a picture of a ship at sea that's falling under the storms, and this, is, this will be your life. Things will get hard, and then here's the result. If you don't have that solid foundation of faith under you, there's Hymenaeus. Oh, he sounded good. He looked good. He was an elder. He, he taught and pre and there he is. There's Alexander, upside down, a tragic mess of a human, a failure as a Christian. And uh, here's one of his closest disciples there, keeled over and tragic and run aground and not moving anymore. And if we don't fight, then we're going to shipwreck people. If we give up the fight, which many churches and even denominations have, it's going to be disastrous. That's why we have to fight. And we have to fight for biblical discipline too. What does that mean? That means there's going to be bad teachers with bad doctrine. They're going to follow a bad discipleship plan and they're going to behave in bad ways. And they are going to be shipwrecked and we can't let them take other people with them. This is how we fight for the truth. This is how we defend what is right. Hymenaeus is mentioned in 2 Timothy 2.17. He was teaching people the resurrection already happened. We don't know exactly what that means, but Paul was getting up and saying, hey, it's a glorious truth. In the future, God's going to call you back up out of your grave and you're going to rule and reign with him forever. And then Hymenaeus is like, no, that's not exactly right. Don't listen to him. Don't listen to the apostle who saw Jesus and got a preview of heaven and is writing Bible books. Don't listen to him. Listen to me. Resurrection is not going to happen in the future. Or maybe he was teaching it already happened, meaning you're already spiritually raised up and there's really no future resurrection. Whatever it was, he was wrong and he was confusing people. Paul says in 2 Timothy that Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. It's probably the same Alexander. Why? Why? Because he strongly opposed my message. Paul said these guys, their teachings spread like gangrene. Gangrene. Now, if somebody came up to you and said, I want to give you some gangrene on your foot, I'm just going to put it right on your foot, you'd be like, get away from me. All right, fine. Well, I'll give it to your teenager and youth. No, get away from it. Fine, I'll go to the nursery and I'll give some gangrene to your baby. You'd be like, get out of here. And that's what some teachers have. Their teaching is filthy poison to the soul. There's rotting food in the fridge, and yet many people go to the same church week after week eating it. It's gangrene. That's why discipline has to happen even among the leaders. That's why we have to fight for biblical discipline to get rid of the wickedness among our own ranks. Hey, listen, we're starting a new series here, and this is going to be an exciting year. But let me just say, the Bible is calling each one of us to to march to the front lines of faith and open fire. The Bible is calling for a war to break out, for you to be standing watch with a shoot-to-kill order over the doctrine and over the discipleship of your church. And anyone who slinks in trying to change that or draw people away is your responsibility and mine. We're going to war. 
it's going to be a great informative year for our church. And let me just leave you with a closing challenge. Um, I want to challenge you this week to read through the whole book of 1 Timothy. Just, just in your devotion time, I want you to read through the whole book of 1 Timothy. Okay? Um, read through it a couple times because that, just let it soak. And then when you come next week and we actually start going verse by verse through the book, you'll have kind of an understanding of the whole scope of it. So read through 1 Timothy. And also pray for me as I lay out the sermons this week that this really is a foundational um, series in the life of our church. And what I want to do now, I do this each time we start a new series. I'm just going to pray for the whole series. And will you join me in that? I'm just going to kneel down and I'm going to pray that God blesses every sermon that is preached in this series for the next year. Let's just all bow our heads. Let's just close our eyes and let's just pray together right now. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the message contained and we Trust you, Lord, that you want us to form and embrace true, deep, solid biblical convictions. And you want us to fight for them. You want us to be willing to lay our lives on the line for them. You want us to guard these truths with our very lives. And so help us, Lord, to form these convictions this year. Help us, Lord, to see what's worth defending. Help us to see what's dangerous, what could jeopardize our own souls and our families. Help us, Lord, to embrace and to defend the true gospel, and the true discipleship found in the, in the Bible. We pray that you would do a work in each one of us. Lord, add on to our faith things that we need to know and do. And we pray that our church would be much stronger because of this. We commit all this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.